Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Goodbye world, I stay no longer with you. Goodbye pleasures of sin, I stay no longer with you. I made up my mind to go God's way the rest of my life. I made up my mind to go God's way the rest of my life. Goodbye world, I stay no longer with you. Goodbye pleasures of sin, I stay no longer with you. I made up my mind to go God's way the rest of my life. I made up my mind to go God's way the rest of my life. Amen, amen and amen. amen. Have you made up your mind to go God's way? Have you said goodbye world? <laughs> Praise God. Well, I rejoice with those who have, and for those who haven't, may you be encouraged to as we give ourselves to the Word of God. We're continuing our, our series in 1 John, A Sure Assurance, and today we'll be looking at verses 12 to 17 as we consider part two of A Sure Relationship. So let's commit ourselves in this time to the Lord in prayer. Amen. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you are the ultimate exit strategy. That in you we're able to find escape, we're able to find deliverance, we're able to find freedom from all that this world is about, Lord. And experience newness of life in you. We thank you, Lord Jesus that you are a sure saviour who provides a sure assurance, that in you we have a sure relationship with the Father and a distinct relationship from the world. And so, Lord, we pray that today you would encourage our hearts, that you would strengthen us in you, that, Lord, you would challenge us at the core of our being and cause our eyes and our hearts to be fully yours in an undivided fashion. We bless you and we thank you for this privilege today. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we had a, a, a week's hiatus, as it were, um, from our series as we paid tribute to the late Pastor Chuck. And um, so this week we return, and um, we're in 1 John chapter 2. You can, if you'd like to turn your Bibles there, we're looking at verses 12 to 17. And... Um, as you do turn there, let me just give a slight recap as we've been away for a moment. We saw previously that a real relationship with the Father results in a real relationship with the brethren. That's probably me getting overexcited. Let me move this away a bit. A real relationship with the Father results in a real relationship with the brethren. And that is characterized by our walk matching our talk. Our walk matching our talk. And so as we looked at verse 3 of chapter 2, we see it spoke to us of knowing God equals obedience. Knowing God equals obedience. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so there will be a heart of obedience, there will be an attitude of obedience, and our actions will correspond with that in resulting obedience, the keeping of God's word. In verse 5 of chapter 2, we saw this understanding progressed, that obedience comes from and is the result of love for God. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Any love that we have for God is from God. 
He inspires it, he grants it, he motivates it. And so the love of God is truly perfected in us as we walk out his word. To know him is to love him. And to love him is to do his will. In verse 8, we saw further progression. We saw that the word is truth and truth is light. So a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the commandment, which has specific application, but in a general sense speaks of God's will, speaks of God's word. It is truth. And that truth is light. And the true light is already shining. And so then in verses 9 and 10, we see John clarify, if we are in the light, i.e. walking in God's truth, then we will have love for the brethren. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And so we see a clarification of a sure relationship with the Father resulting in a sure relationship with one another as brethren. We thank the Lord for that. And so as we um, get to our verses today, we'll read and then dissect them. 1 John 2 verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so in this we see two sections. In this we see a relationship affirmed in verses 12 to 14. And in verses 15 to 17, we see a relationship to avoid. A relationship affirmed and a relationship to avoid. Now, when we started the series, we clarified that John's intention in writing 1 John was to assure those who were true in the faith. To assure those who were true in the faith. And that's the main intent that John has in writing this letter. And yet we also see that John is not content merely to give assurance to those who are really real. He's also desiring to assault the force. <laughs> I've been practicing. To assault the force. I'm sure I could have um, come up with some other alliteration for that. So um, at the end of the day, John wants to provide comfort to those who, who are in Christ, and yet he wants to bring conviction to those who are not. Very often, as Christians, we can be inclined to focus on and major on the convicting aspects of God's Word. Some of us are very happy to seek to bring conviction to others. 
It may betray a certain legalistic mindset that we have. It may be betray a certain sense of self-righteousness that we have. Sometimes it may betray a genuine desire for the honor of the Lord's name. Because if we genuinely desire to see the Lord's name honored, then we will be displeased with those things that displease him. And yet we see here, John takes a step. Some would say a digression. In my mind, I see it as a progression. John takes a step forward in affirming those who are true. In affirming those who are true. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, when John uses the term little children here, some regard this as referring to all Christians, as he uses the term children a few times in this, as he speaks to the people there. Some say it's in Ephesus that he's writing to. That could well be true. All of us are children of God, amen? If we have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, of course. And so being in Christ, we are God's children. And this has application to us. Whilst at the same time, there are others who would say, John isn't just speaking generally, but in these three sections of statements that he makes, he's actually speaking to different levels of maturity in the Christian faith. Those who are children, the immature, those who are fathers, the mature, and those who are young men, the maturing. Now, his use of the masculine is not in neglect of the ladies present in the congregation that he's writing to. Not by any means. But more so, writing to the, the males as representative leaders within the, the, the Christian community there, within the church there. And so, where do you see yourself in that range of levels of maturity, as it were? Do you see yourself as still a babe in Christ? Do you see yourself as one who is maturing in Christ? Or do you see yourself as one who is mature? It's a fair question to ask, and it's a fair question for us to ask ourselves. Even though we may not be able to clearly answer that, because our own opinion of ourselves can be quite biased, right? But the reality is that one who is a child of God should be in a process of change, should be in a process of maturation. We should be undergoing maturing by the work of God's word and presence of his spirit. What does maturity look like in your life? Is there a sense of you growing in grace? Is there a sense of you growing in your desire for God's word? Is there a sense of you growing in the ability to apply his word to your life? What does maturity look like in your life? John actually gives some indicators as to where these various stages, um, what characterizes these various stages. And it's quite interesting because there's a common denominator, a common factor in them all. So if we were to break it down into sections, we'd see children, I'm writing to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And so for those who are truly children of God, first and foremost, that person has an understanding that they've been forgiven. 
They have an understanding that they've been forgiven. And that understanding is supposed to be a proper understanding. And as we looked at at the the beginning of chapter 2, we see that the basis of that forgiveness is Jesus. Nothing else and no one else. And actually, it is clearly evident that when a person comes to a, a revelation of that reality, that Jesus is the only way of salvation, not my Christian family, not my church-going heritage, n- none of these things. Not because I was dedicated, christened, or baptized as a child, but that actually we are forgiven because of Christ and for his namesake and for his glory then truly we see indication that a person has come to a a right revelation of who God is and who we are in the light of that. He says, children, I write to you because you know the Father. Now, bearing in mind that there was at this time, as I mentioned before, within the culture, a, a, a community of people who held to the idea that spiritual knowledge was secret. Spiritual knowledge was something that you had to attain to. Spiritual knowledge was something that you had to, you had to um, graduate to. They were called Gnostics. John is giving clear affirmation, look, there's no graduation needed when it comes to knowing God. Once you are in Christ, you know the Father. You have relationship with the Father, knowing in a relational sense. It doesn't obviously mean that you know everything that there is to be known about God. That would be blasphemy, right? God is infinite. And yet we recognize that through Christ, we genuinely come into relationship with the Father. And not only are we known by Him, but we know Him. And we grow in that understanding. And we grow in the knowledge of Him. And we grow in relationship with Him. And the unfortunate thing is that even in certain streams of Christianity today, there are those who would give the same impression That you know what, only when you're on spiritual levels can you get the revelation knowledge that I have. And sometimes that's communicated not blatantly and obviously, but it's just in the attitude. You know, I've come from the secret place. Some of you saw me come from the back room, right? Come from the secret place. I've been in the throne room with the Father. I used to hear that and think that actually, literally, if I was to walk through the door, the whole environment would be transformed into light, bright, perfect light, and there would be be clouds, the Shekinah glory, and there would just be a stillness as the world outside disappeared. And like literally, honestly, I've, I've heard that so many times, and for a long time I thought, wow, they went and had some experience of God that is unique and special, that is, is unreachable, and I would pray for, Lord, I want to I enter the throne room with you, and I want to come out with revelation knowledge that's going to impress the people, I mean bless the people. <laughs> you know, Christianity is the great leveler. They say that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everyone's on the same level. When it comes to relationship with God, it's either you're in or you're out. It's either you're submitted to Christ's lordship, having repented of your sins, or you're not in relationship with God. There's no gray area. 
There's no sense of ascendancy when it comes to having relationship. Now, as we see, there is a sense of maturity, and we should press on to that end. But even as a babe in Christ, John's affirming, you know the Father. It's interesting because he goes on to say to the fathers, and he puts them before the young men, he says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And he actually says the same thing twice. And as I considered that, I thought to myself, you know what? It's such an encouragement to the soul to know that the babe in Christ has the same relationship with God with, as one who is mature in that they know the Father. He didn't say, fathers, I write to you because you know him and you have graduated through seasons of trial and you have perspired without retiring and you have continued without forsaking and you have gained understanding of the word of God and you have learned the Hebrew and the Greek and your fathers, your mature. There's just a sense of having a deeper understanding by reason of walking with God. And this is what Christian maturity is about. Walking with God. Walking with Jesus. And as we continue to walk with Jesus, it's not such that we need to strive for maturity. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. He said, abide in me and I abide in you and you'll bring forth fruit. And so, our maturing in the Christian faith comes from continuing in relationship with the Father. And by His grace, He matures us. And so we can be encouraged by that. I know that there are so many who are new to the faith and feel so overwhelmed. They, they grab a Bible and it's so thick and the print is so small and there are so many sections and I'm just so unfamiliar with it. And then even as I begin to read it, I just wish I could just download it matrix style and, and have it all in me and understand it. And it seems such a, like a, a daunting task. Be encouraged. As you continue by the grace of God, you will experience the maturing work of God as worked by his spirit. And yet we see Paul's word to the young men. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And again, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God, word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Every Christian will go through seasons of testing. Every Christian will go through seasons of trial. We have an adversary, Peter tells us, who goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We're to resist him steadfastly in the faith. And the Apostle Paul put it like this in Ephesians 6. Having done all to stand, stand. God preserves his people, even against adversity, even against trials, even against persecution. And as we experience that, 
we're greatly encouraged. You may be going through a, a season of trial in your life right now as a believer. You may be experiencing great adversity in your life. Maybe you're new to the faith and you've kind of been through that honeymoon period of, you know, the sky looks bluer and the grass looks greener and everything seems rosy. And you begin to encounter some difficulty. Be encouraged because Jesus is faithful. And as you continue in relationship with him, giving yourself to his word, allowing the word of God to abide in you, you will experience victory. That is a promise of God. And so what a blessing it is to see John giving great encouragement to those who are continuing with the Lord, those who are growing in grace, those who are walking in faith. And one of the things that really kind of stood out to me was the fact that even those who are strong need encouragement. Even those who are strong need encouragement. Somebody sent me a text this week, and it was just pure encouragement. Thank the Lord for your life, and thank the Lord for the, the way that you, you pour into to my life, and the way in which you serve us, and thank God for you. And it was completely unexpected. It was um, completely sincere. There was no hidden agenda, or I was waiting for, you know, the second one. Oh, and is it possible to... <laughs> but it was just straight encouragement. And it was genuinely that. And so often we can look at others and think they're strong. They don't need any encouragement. Those, you know, you go to community group every week, and you see your community group leaders there, and they're always there ready to serve and ready to share and to pray and to answer questions and does the thought ever cross your mind you know what maybe they, they, they would appreciate some encouragement and your team leaders organizing the rotor and they're ensuring that people are there and there on time and people know what they're doing and week in week out you see them and does it ever cross your mind actually you know what they may be in they, they, they would benefit from some encouragement It's a challenge because we can be so self-centered and see only our own needs and neglect to see the needs of others. Especially when they seem like they've got it all together. But the reality is that all of us need encouragement. Amen? Amen. And so as John encourages them, and affirms them in relationship with God. He turns his attention in verse 15 to that relationship there to avoid. That relationship there to avoid. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, I remember sharing on this once, and somebody came up to me afterwards, and they, they said, you know what, I don't understand, because it seems like a huge contradiction for John to say, do not love the world. And yet, in his gospel, he said, God so loved the world. How does that work? I mean, aren't we, on one hand, supposed to love the world? And yet, on the other hand, he's saying, we're not to love the world. How does it work? What's it all about? The reality is that, first and foremost, we're governed by context. And we appreciate that John's gospel, as much as it's the same writer, is not the same writing as John's letter. And it's a good principle for us as we're 
reading Scripture and studying Scripture and seeking to rightly understand Scripture, that we allow context to be a, a, a guiding principle as to how we come to our understanding of the meaning. Context, context, context. And so, it's two different writings. The gospel, he has a different context, a different intent than he does here. There's no contradiction whatsoever. In fact, there is no contradiction in the scriptures whatsoever. Just to reaffirm that truth. And so where there seems to be an apparent contradiction, what we have to do is review our understanding rather than throw away the text. Amen? Sometimes we can think that we see things so right and yet we're so wrong. Now, there have been occasions when I've returned to a car park, you know, one of those multi-story car parks, been absolutely certain that I parked my car in a certain place, even to go and see my car before me. Now, this has actually happened to me. Walked up to the car, key fob's not working. Okay. Must be battery. Only to realize that it wasn't my car at all. It looked very similar. I was in completely the wrong place, looking at the wrong car, thinking I was right. And so when we encounter apparent contradictions, we just need to apply some patience, seek counsel, whether it's from elders and those who are mature, whether it's from commentaries, but take our time and work through it. God never contradicts himself. And so in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We see that in that text when God speaks of the world he's speaking of people. In our text when John speaks of the world, he's not speaking of people but He's speaking more so of a system of belief. In John 3.16, when God speaks of love, he's speaking of holy, redemptive love. And yet here we see that when John speaks of love in the world, he's speaking of a wholehearted embrace And so there are differences there that help us to understand that as John speaks of the world here, he's talking about the system of beliefs, attitudes, and behavior contrary to the gospel of Christ. Now, when I was growing up in the faith, I used to hear a lot about worldliness and I had many um, challenges from people because they, they considered me worldly. See? Still challenging me now. They said, Ephraim. They were Jamaican, yeah? Have you backslidden? Because when I look at your haircut in the days when I had hair, I would say that it looks very worldly. <laughs> now, it's interesting to me because the kind of hairstyles that I used to like have kind of come back into fashion. It's, it's kind of a challenge to my covetousness. But, you know, like the short back and sides and the flat tops. See, guys putting partings in their hair and everything. And it's like, uh, you guys are a pale imitation of how we used to do it first time around. <laughs> but you're trying, isn't it? It's all good. And so, you know, that whole kind of, like, back in the day with the kid and play cut and whatever. And, um, you know, that was, that was my thing. And actually, the, the, iron, the ironic thing was, my inspiration to get my hair cut like that first time round was 
first time around like I'm doing it now. My, my inspiration to get my hair cut like that was actually a gospel group, a group called Commission. Yeah, those who know, they add the amen. <laughs> and um, so it wasn't even a thing where I was looking at guys in the world and thinking I want to be like them, quite frankly. But in the mind of those who challenged me, their definition of worldliness was my hairstyle or the way I might dress. The style of music. Today, people, tattoos, so worldly. And the sad thing is that so often as Christians, we reduce worldliness down to these external forms of things that are really not by any means in contradiction to the gospel. Actually, they're more to the point, they're in contradiction of men's traditions. So back in the day, they wouldn't allow electric guitars in church because it was too worldly. You imagine that? Guitars. And this has been historic throughout church history. And yet we see that we focus our attention on the wrong thing when we reduce worldliness to mere external forms. Worldliness is much more significant than that. Worldliness is much deeper than that. Worldliness is actually much more important than that. Loving the world, system of beliefs, attitudes, and behavior contrary to the gospel of Christ. So our beliefs shape our attitudes. Sometimes people don't need to say a word, right? It's like, oh, what do you think of? And just the expression alone conveys their attitude about a certain thing. The next question would be, why? What is their belief that causes them to have that attitude? As a result of that belief, they will have an attitude that will cause them to behave toward that thing in a certain way. And so the reality is that there is so much more worldliness by way of shared beliefs and attitudes with the world then really even comes close when it comes to the outward forms. So people see me preaching in a cap. Isn't that worldly? I say, well, actually, the priests of the Old Testament couldn't enter into the holy place without a turban on their head. And God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, normally, by the time I've said that, they're, they're like, just doe-eyed, have no idea how to respond. And that's before we even touch on 1 Corinthians 11. And so the reality is, if something is biblically able to be validated, if something is consistent with the gospel of Christ and the right interpretation of his word, then it's permissible. If it's not, it's not permissible. For so many of us, we're worldly in the way of being people who share God or share our beliefs with God and with other things. Some people feel that, you know what? My goal in life is to be happy. This is not found in the scriptures, unfortunately. It's, it's, it's a common point of view in life. All I want is to be happy. I just want you to be happy. Let's all be happy. When none of us really are, because life can be a mess. And yet that belief can condition people's attitudes toward things. So we share that belief, and as a Christian, our attitude towards persecution is, you know what? That's not going to make me happy. 
I'm really not going to put myself in a situation where I'm liable to be persecuted. I'll just keep quiet about Jesus. And so our resulting behavior demonstrates a contrariness to the gospel of Christ. Some people have subscribed to the YOLO mentality. You only live once. And when we look at the world, and when we look at the, what that results in, it results in decadence. It results in reckless and careless living. Having sex with multiple partners, doing drugs. I mean, you only live once. But that's not consistent with the gospel. Because Jesus said, actually, we're supposed to be born again. To be born again and experience new life. And so, for the one who truly professes Christ, you cannot subscribe to the YOLO mentality. You only live once. And allow that belief to determine your behavior. Because after this life, there is a judgment. And every idle word that a person speaks, every thought and every action will be brought into judgment by God. And the unfortunate reality for those who actually believe the whole YOLO, only live once mentality is, they don't appreciate that they will continue to exist after death. It's a simple question of where. Because even death is eternal. And so, we need to guard our hearts against having a love and embrace for the world's beliefs, attitudes, and corresponding behavior. For some, it's a case that they think, you know what? My purpose in life is to accumulate money. And yet the scriptures teach us that our purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if I hold to that view that my purpose is to accumulate money, get the best education, have the best job, make as much money as I can, that is going to come into conflict with true gospel convictions. And so, we're not to love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. The love of the Father is not in him. When you listen to your favorite artist, who is evidently not a Christian, do you love the things that they communicate? Do you love what they're about? Do you embrace it wholeheartedly? Because if you do, then you really have to consider this statement. If you can love those things that God hates, do you really love God? When you watch David Attenborough doing his whole evolution bit on the BBC. Are you inspired? Does it fill you with awe? Do you take it on board and embrace it? In the commandments that God gave to Israel, he said, you will have no other God before or beside me. You have no other God before or beside me. God will share his glory with no one or nothing. And so if one has a love for the world, 
then the love of the Father is not in you. In fact, James takes it a step further and he says, in James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now that there is literally fighting talk. There's a sense in the original language that when James speaks about one making himself an enemy of God, as a picture, it, it, we see God putting himself in battle array, in combat gear, ready to go to war with that individual. That is not a good place to be in. This really gives opportunity for us to do some soul searching. To what extent do we truly love the world and the things of this world? Do we allow them to challenge God's rightful place in our hearts as Lord, as King, as Governor, as Boss, as Ruler? Do we allow these things to contest His rightful place in our hearts? John goes on in verse 16 of 1 John 2. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. The desires of the flesh, those things that are good to our senses, those things that will cause us to be satisfied and gratified. Sensual satisfaction. The desires of the eyes. Those things that look appealing, that look attractive, that look desirable. The pride in possessions. Respect. Status. We see that as John is speaking, he's referring back to the garden and exposing the very strategies of Satan that were of old. In Genesis chapter 3, if you'd like to turn there in verse 6, we see Satan's temptation of Eve. Genesis 3, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. You see, right here played out the strategy of Satan, the anatomy of temptation, that which was good for food, the lust of the flesh. It was a delight to the eyes, visually appealing and attractive. It was desire to make one wise, a source of respect and status. Similarly, we see the same pattern in Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is tempted by the devil. Yet again, the anatomy of temptation. The tempter came to Jesus saying, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. What does that suggest? The lust of the flesh, sensual gratification. The devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Challenging his status challenging his reputation, if you are the son of God. It's like when you were at school and somebody was trying to provoke you to have a fight. So, if you think you're bad, come on then, if you think you're bad. <laughs> Want to challenge your reputation and your status. And again, we see Satan Take him to the summit of the temple and show him all the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur. Notice, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their grandeur. And he said, I will give you all of these things if you throw yourself down to the ground. The lust of the eyes. And so in what ways are these things that work in your life, maybe. In what ways are you experiencing the temptation to give in to the lust of the flesh? For some of us, it might be something as simple as food, for true. Gluttony. I had to stop short when I thought about that one. For some of us, it may be listening to things that make us feel good or they sound good, but they're not good. Listening to artists and their content is not righteous. Listening to philosophies and teachings that are not right and are not good, but they sound so good. The lust of the flesh. Sensual gratification. Maybe it's that desire for sexual gratification. To enjoy that feeling and experience. And yet, not in the right context. At the right time with the right person. How about the desires of the eyes? Have you got pictures plastered up on your wall of those handbags and those shoes that so inspire you? Or for guys, is it the cars, the, the Bugatti, the Phantom? Maybe they're not on your walls. We, we just have them on our phones these days, right? <laughs> the lust of the eyes. The pride in possessions. Got to have that doctorate. I've got to have that big house. I've got to keep up with the Joneses. The Lord's showing us that actually these things are means by which we are tempted and drawn away from him if we do not guard our hearts. These things are not from the Father, but from the world. And John makes it clear 
that the world is under the rule and control of Satan. In 1 John 5 verse 19, he says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world may be thrown out. In chapter 14, he said, I will no longer speak with you much, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has no power over me. In chapter 16, he said, And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been condemned. The Bible is explicit about the fact that when Adam succumbed to the temptation, he gave Satan authority and dominion over this world. And so in that regard, Satan is regarded as a lowercase g god of this world. God is sovereign. God is ruler, even over Satan. And yet Satan has rights and authority in this life. In Ephesians 2, we're clearly told that we were once dead in trespasses and sins. Those things in which we once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, there is nothing good in this world, in and of itself. All things must be submitted to the sovereignty of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And one of the clear reasons for that is because why? The world is passing away along with its desires. Everything that is, at some point, will no longer be. We appreciate that in Christ we have the expectation of a new heaven and a new earth. The house that we're killing ourselves to pay for the car that we can't wait to get our hands on. Whatever it is that we're desiring, actually, it's all going to go up in flames. It's temporary, temporal. And yet, God is eternal. And so in 1 John 2.17, he makes it clear, the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There is a certain slavery. There is a certain bondage that comes with pursuing things of no value and no worth. And that's all it amounts to. We sit down and we watch X Factor and we watch people crying their eyes out because they want to get through to the next round. I mean, I don't think there's been an X Factor with more crying than this season. So much tears and they haven't even had their verdict yet. Why do you want this? <laughs> Start hyperventilating. <laughs> because this is going to be so much to me. It's going to change my life. I'm like, yo. Haven't you even stopped to think about some of those winners of the past that you just haven't heard of since? <laughs> is it really that deep? And yet there's this desire and this grasping after the things of this world as if it's really going to have eternal value. But it's not. It's all going to go up in flames. It's all going to mean nothing in the end. The world is passing away along with its desires. And the beautiful thing is as we experience freedom from that bondage in Christ, and as we enter into our eternal home, all of those things will just be, they won't even be a distant memory. We'll be so consumed with God and his glory, we won't even remember 
those mortgage payments we couldn't make, the six-pack we couldn't attain, it would just be, it would be nothing to us. And so let's keep things in perspective. Let's keep our minds set on things above. Appreciating the things of this world in that light. In, you know, Paul said to Titus that, you know what, all things have been given for our enjoyment. Sorry, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 6. All things have been given for our enjoyment. It's not like all of a sudden, okay, well, I, I, I can't have a nice car. Because I don't want to be worldly. No, it's not having a heart for these things. It's being able to treat them. You know, I remember a guy, um, he was going away as a missionary. And he had, a, he had, a, he had a, a really nice car. And he came to see my dad at the time and he said, look, you know what, I'm going away. Um, just wanted to say goodbye and um, just give you these keys. And now my dad's got, my dad's a mechanic, and at the time he had cars, plural. Half of them were kind of in bits and pieces, but he had cars. He didn't really need another car. And yet this brother gave him this car, it was a, a Lancia, I can't remember what type of Lancia it was. And now my dad's a mechanic, and he appreciated that car that he was given, and he, he, he spent some time on that. It was, it was a monster. I feared for my life when I got in it. But this, this guy, it's like... I'm sitting there thinking, watching this conversation, but you could have sold that car. You could have made money on that car. That, that car was of worth and value. But this brother's heart was just set on the missions field. And the value of those things had nothing in comparison to what he was seeking to see by way of the value of souls redeemed through the glorious gospel of Christ. And the reality is that we have to hold the things of this life lightly. Lest God have to prize them out of our dead, cold hands. Love not the world, nor the things of the world. Shall we stand? Is Jesus your supreme desire? Is the glory of his name your ultimate goal? Or do the things of this world crowd in on your affections, crowd in on your aspirations? Are they the things that you really want? Do you just want to be happy? even at the expense of being holy? Because for so many of us, that's the reality. We might be clear about the things that we won't tolerate, the things that we don't accommodate, the things that we don't give ourselves to. I'll never do that. Oh no, that doesn't mean anything to me. But there are things in our hearts. And it may not be for material things. But it may be for things such as status. Well, of course I subscribe to evolution because I don't want to look a fool in front of my colleagues. May we search our hearts before the Lord and ask him to rid us of any true worldliness ask him to expose ourselves to ourselves ask him to search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us because we are not to love the world or the things that are in it Lord God and Heavenly Father, we just come before you today and um, we recognize we're vulnerable, Lord.
we recognize and appreciate that we are inclined to to be sinful Lord and we're inclined to desire things that are not of you but are of this world that are not for you but are for ourselves that are not from you but are actually from the evil one help us Lord as we give our hearts to you help us Lord to be open and willing to submit to the spotlight of your spirit and to rid ourselves Lord by your grace and the application of your word Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for where we may have been. Double-hearted, Lord. For where we've had divided loyalties. Forgive us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.